There is often such wickedness and evil. We do thank you tonight for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us, you would bless us, your people, as we come to it now. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in it, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 7. Now we come to the really interesting part. Uh, Daniel is a a book in two halves, and um, at the risk of being a little bit uh, flippant, if the book of Daniel was uh, a football match, chapters 1 to 6, let's just say they would be, um, uh, I don't know, maybe there would be a couple of goals, it would be a kind of draw at halftime, the the entertainment would have been uh, quite interesting. The, the pundits would be talking about uh, how the game had been pretty good so far. But the second half, in the second half, there would be loads and loads of goals. In the second half, there would be lots of people sent off. In the second half, there would be a pitch invasion and um, flares and all kinds of things. Because this second half of Daniel is uh, striking. Um, it's full of visions after the stories. Uh, we have a series of visions. They're uh, less familiar than uh, chapters 1 to 6. And they can feel a bit intimidating. And so what I want to do as we uh, begin looking at this chapter is just uh, point out three things. Three mini points before our three big points tonight. Three little things to mention as we uh, look at this chapter as we begin. First is the structure, Daniel chapter 7. Just like uh, the book of Daniel, which divides in two, Daniel chapter 7 divides in two as well. So verses 1 to 14 are uh, this series of visions. And then the second half, verse 15 to 28, is the interpretation. And even knowing that, I think, helps us. A little bit as we look at this chapter. Second, look how the chapter begins. Notice the timing. Now, this dream it happens in the first year of Belshazzar. And there's been lots of uh, different names in the book of Daniel. It's easy to get confused. But what this teaches us is that Daniel as a book is not written chronologically. I tend to like chronological accounts. Maybe you're the same. But we last met Belshazzar back in chapter 5. Then in chapter 6, we have Darius and the den. And then it's back to Belshazzar here. So Daniel is written in a a different kind of way. It's not a, a chronological book. Structure, the timing. Thirdly, maybe most importantly, notice the impact Look with me at verse uh, 15. Um, As Daniel sees, as Daniel reflects on this vision, he doesn't simply say, well, that was interesting. He doesn't just pour himself a second cup of coffee. And the same is true in verse 28. Even after he's been given the interpretation. He is undone. And this is so often what happens to God's servants when they have a revelation like this. Moses, Isaiah, Peter, John, they are just a few examples. It's it's a reminder to us tonight that hearing God's word 
is not some kind of neutral experience. Hearing God's word, even this evening, can feel unsettling. It can leave us with questions. But God allows that to happen. God allows that to deepen our relationship with him, to cause us to seek his face, to cause us to turn to him and ask for his help in understanding his word. So those are the three mini points, structure, timing, impact. Let's get into the passage now and look firstly, our first of our three big points tonight. In verses one to eight, I think we see how history goes, how history goes, verses one to eight. What we have in these verses is, is Daniel's account of a terrifying dream. And uh, up till now, he's been the interpreter, hasn't he, of dreams. But now it's his turn. He sees the great sea, most likely the, the Mediterranean, stirred up by four winds. It's chaotic. It's disordered. And then all the beasts appear. They're very frightening, aren't they? But I wonder if you notice uh, how Daniel describes them. They're all different, but each time he uses the word like, he says it was like X or like Y or like Z. This is how apocalyptic literature works. What is seen is so unusual that the person who is seeing it reaches for familiar language and categories to, to try to describe it. Daniel sees a beast like a lion with eagle's wings, feet, and a mind like a man. That is unusual. He sees a bear ready to pounce, told to devour much flesh. He sees a leopard with four wings and four heads. Kids, I don't know if you want to try and draw these things tonight, maybe. And then he sees a final beast. The worst is saved for last. Look at verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Key phrase a bit further down. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It has ten horns and then this, this other horn appears and speaks great things. Now, as you can imagine, there have been um, all sorts of debate about the identity of these animals. Uh, many people see them as a representative of four different empires. So Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then the fourth one, uh, the fourth, the most impressive being Rome. That is one way of looking at uh, these beasts. But I think there's another way as well. As many have noted, what we have in this vision is not just four beasts. We see here how history tends to go. This is what power, human power, often looks like. This is what it can become like. These animals, they are pictures of the brutality that is so often played out down the centuries. They're a reminder that nations 
and rulers can become animalistic. You see, political power, military might, these things, they are not evils in themselves, are they? But they can become very evil. And often men and women in positions of power can become like animals. They can trample over others. See, let me just pick out one example. Think about what wings symbolize. What do wings allow a predator to do? Well, wings, they they increase the area that animal can hunt in, that bird, don't they? Wings allow that bird the opportunity to see things from above. They give a bird a kind of divine perspective and then that enables them to swoop down and attack. This is what human power is often like. And recently I listened to a, a fascinating lecture by a man called Jeff Greenman. He is the president of Regent College in uh, Vancouver, a Christian uh, college. And it was a reflection on the war in Ukraine. And his presentation, it was entitled, The Perverse Logic of Evil. It's a striking title, isn't it? In his lecture, this man, he he contrasts two paths, chaos and shalom. And you can guess which one he thinks that Vladimir Putin is heading down. And yet, friends, these things, they should never surprise us. There's a logic to the behavior of a man like Putin. If you think that might is right, if you think there is no God, if you think really there's no accountability for your actions, well, why not invade your neighbor? Why not? See, the 20th century was marked by all sorts of advances, wasn't it? And um, science and technology, our lives are so much more comfortable than those that came before. And yet, what did we also see in that century? Utter devastation. Stephen Kotkin is a, a professor of history and international affairs at Princeton University. In 2017, he wrote his estimate in the Wall Street Journal, that 65 million people, 65 million people died prematurely under communist regimes. Those deaths, they were the result of mass deportations, forced labor, state terror, starvation, And friends, this is the world that we live in. Being a Christian, it it gives us wonderful hope in the midst of it, doesn't it? But we must always face reality. You and I, we're not promised utopia before Jesus returns. The world we live in is brutal. The world we live in can be terrifying. 
And yet, can you see that even in, in giving Daniel this vision, God is showing that he is in control. These animals, they seem so powerful. They seem so out of control. And yet God is not surprised by these events. That's a comfort to us tonight. Even when history seems random, God knows the end from the beginning. He has it mapped out. He is aware of all that is happening. He sees all things, how history goes. Secondly, though, what in our uh, second point is this, what believers know, how history goes. Secondly, what believers know. Now, I said earlier, Daniel's not written chronologically, and I want to do something similar with this chapter rather than working through it in a kind of linear way as we often do. I want us to take a big jump from the end of verse 8, if you're looking at the the passage, to verse 15. We're going to come back to uh, the second vision, uh, verse 9 to verse 14. For now, I want us to look at verse 15 to 28. And what we have here is the interpretation that is given to Daniel. And most of it focuses from verse 19, at least, uh, on the activity of the fourth and the final beast, the ten horns, the little horn. And it's really helpful for us to know that in apocalyptic literature, numbers are symbolic. And we see this um, in the book of Revelation. So when John says he saw 144,000 people in Revelation chapter 7, that is not meant to be an exact number, but a representative number. He sees all of God's people. He sees a number that can be divided by 12, the number of the Old Testament tribes or the New Testament apostles. The same is true here. Ten, these ten horns, Ten is a a comprehensive number. Now you can imagine that people have tried to guess who are all these different horns, who is the one horn and so on. I do have a theory about that one horn. But when it comes to the ten, I think rather than going beyond scripture, uh, rather than trying to guess who each of these horns are, rather than trying to plan out some kind of divine timetable, I think we're wiser to view them differently. Here's how someone has put it. If the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire, well then the ten horns are best taken as the continuation of the spirit that was so powerfully expressed in that empire. I think God is saying to us through this chapter, military might, authoritarianism, these kinds of things will keep on happening in God's world. These kinds of things will be the pattern right up to when Jesus returns. But what about that final horn? Well, I'm pretty um, persuaded that uh, we're best to understand it as pointing to one figure who will do battle with God's people at the end of time. And this is a figure that Scripture often refers to as the Antichrist. 
And yet, as I was reminded this week, John says in his first letter, what does John say? He says, many antichrists have already come. And so even if there is a future element to this figure, to these figures, then the spirit here is alive and well, even now. Now, I've called this point um, what believers know, and maybe you're sat here scratching your heads, wondering what this is all about. I've called it what believers know deliberately, because I think there's lots here that can be confusing, isn't there? There's lots of ways we could maybe read this differently. People have argued over this chapter. And yet there are two things, I think, that we can be absolutely sure of. Two words, hostility and victory. Hostility and victory. Look with me first at the hostility. In verse 21, this, this little horn that rises up is described. Verse 21. And look at what Daniel is told it will do. Daniel is told it will make war with the saints. Make war. And I think those two words, they're a jolt, aren't they? They're a wake up, they're a slap on the face. This is a reminder that we have an enemy, that God's people are opposed. And there is someone standing behind all opposition to God's people. It is Satan himself. I preached on Revelation chapter 12 recently. I said, I think probably my generation have not thought enough about spiritual warfare, maybe compared to previous generations. It's very easy for us to be naive. It's easy to forget this when we're struggling with sin or we're facing opposition. And I think, especially if we are people who have a sensitive conscience, I think our natural tendency when these things happen, when we suffer, when we sin, is only to look within. Now, some honest um, self-examination is always helpful, isn't it? And yet, sometimes I think as God's people, we need to remember that we have, we have a great and awful enemy. The devil is real. The devil is at work in this world, often in very subtle ways. See, when a country's at war, um, they know about it, don't they? Um, I mentioned Ukraine. People in Ukraine, they know they have an enemy. They can visualize one man right now, can't they? They can see his face in their mind's eyes. We have an enemy too. Look with me at verse 25 and look at uh, the way that this warfare language is developed. As this figure, as this little horn is described, look at what is said about him. 
he shall speak words against the Most High. It's blasphemous, isn't it? He shall wear out the saints. It's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't say he, he'll destroy or kill. He'll wear out God's people. Christians often feel worn out, don't we? And then there's a sense in which he will try and distort um, the natural order of things. He'll try to change the times and the law. And yet look at the end of verse 25. This will take place for a time, times, and half a time. And many think of this as uh, representing three and a half years. That's half of the biblical number seven. In other words, it will be a limited period. It will not last Forever, one day, all that opposes God's rule will be thrown down. That is the tenor of this text. There won't just be hostility. There will be victory. There will be an everlasting kingdom. And yet, do you see the wonder of it? When victory comes, God's word says, we will share in that victory. See, look at verse 27, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. Who will it be given to? It will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. They will be a great reversal. And the people who were once despised will possess the kingdom, verse 22. This is where history is really heading. We prayed for um, some persecuted Christians tonight. What a comfort that is, isn't it, for persecuted Christians. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And what does the text say? We shall reign with him. We, we sang that at the beginning of this service. And so it takes me to my final point. We've seen how history goes. We've seen what believers know. But there's a final thing I want us uh, to look at tonight, and it's this, what Jesus holds, what Jesus holds. This is a really dramatic, it's an overwhelming chapter. There's much here that could uh, leave us afraid, leave us feeling uncertain, but I want us to close by going to the center. Look at verses 9 to 14. And I want us to end this sermon with our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now maybe you're thinking, well, Jesus isn't actually mentioned here in these verses. I think what we need to realize is that he frequently identified himself with this exact figure, with this son of of man. This is one of the favorite ways Jesus had of, of speaking about himself. Uh, this is something that people exploring Christianity have to come to terms with. Jesus, for all his humility and gentleness, Jesus knew exactly who he was. And at his trial in uh, Mark chapter 14, he shocked the high priests. And his compatriots, when he took up the very words of verse 13 and said to them, one day you will see me. 
you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. This passage is um, similar, this middle passage is similar, I think, to, verse, to, to Revelation 4 and, and Revelation 5. What does John see in Revelation 4? He sees the great throne room of heaven. But then in chapter 5 of Revelation, what does he see? He sees the Lamb. He sees Jesus in that same place of authority. It's the same thing here. You see, look at verse 9. John sees a courtroom. He sees a number of thrones. And then he sees one big throne. The figure sitting on it is the Ancient of Days, God himself. The clothing he wears And the fire that streams from the throne signifies his holiness, his majesty, his purity. Thousands gather round him. Books are opened. But then in verse 13 to 14, another figure appears. He comes before the ancient of days. He is like a son of man. Literally, he is like a human being. And yet there's a shock here. This figure, this son of man, he is given dominion. He is given glory. He is given a kingdom. He is the one who's to receive universal worship and acclaim. All peoples, nations, and languages are to serve him. And his kingdom is going to last forever. But friends, look at what is in between those two central visions. In, look at verses 11 and 12. Friends, in verse 11 and 12, the horn, the beast are mentioned, aren't they? And I think the arrangement is really deliberate. Side by side, you've got uh, two glorious visions, one of the ancient of days, one of the son of man. Here's how someone has put it. The little horn and its beast are scrunched and squeezed between the ancient of days and the son of man. In other words, the enemies of God's people, human power is dwarfed, dwarfed by the one on the throne. Friends, history is in the hands of the son of man, the Lord Jesus Christ. On earth, he suffered, he died. He came not to be served, but to serve. But now, after his humiliation, this same son of man, he sits, even tonight, at the Father's right hand. And no little horn, no beastly human ruler, no one, nothing can stop his rule. Well, Monday was... Halloween, wasn't it? But it was also Reformation Day. Did you know that? And uh, on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, he posted his uh, famous 95 theses uh, on the door of a church in Wittenberg, kick-started the greatest renewal the church had seen since the days of the Apostles. And uh, some people... uh, Maybe don't know that Luther was famous for writing hymns. And his most famous hymn, listen to 
this verse from that hymn. Luther writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. That's how we feel, isn't it, often? He goes on, We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Friends, one day Christ will return. And one day the nightmares, the nightmare of history, the nightmare of our sin, our suffering, one day all of these things will end. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus Christ, Savior, take the power and glory Claim the kingdom for your own. Well, let's pray together.